Welcome to On Fire. This is episode five of the On Fire podcast. My name is Ryan Allen. About a year after I returned home from my mission, I was recruited by a friend to join a summer sales program selling pest control contracts door to door. So my wife and I were newlyweds at the time, and we drove together from northern Utah to southern Florida in the United States to spend the summer earning big bucks like my friend had, had done the previous summer. So my job was to knock on doors and sell homeowners a pest control service. It was a, a recurring service where a technician would come to their home every, every other month or so uh, for a year and apply pesticides to help control the bugs that are pretty prevalent in Florida. So I had to convince the homeowner to sign a one-year contract and and make at least their first payment. So using a pest control service is, is actually very common in Florida. So the challenge wasn't so much convincing people to use a service as it was to use my service. So the trick was was to find new neighborhoods where the homes had just been constructed and and services like pest control hadn't been established yet. So sometimes I wouldn't be the first one there or I couldn't find a new neighborhood and had to try an older one. But when I would knock on the door and, and give my sales pitch, the first objection they would have would almost always be that the homeowner already had a pest control service that they were using. If I would have just walked away after hearing that, I would have missed a lot of sales and I, I wouldn't have been much of a salesman. But the the ethical response to this objection is to ask questions about whether the person's current service was satisfying their needs and if there was an opportunity to improve their situation or if they were under contract. Uh, what I often found myself doing, however, was to try and paint their current service provider as inferior without really knowing anything about the company or, or their service. Sometimes it was just one person and Honestly, he was probably fantastic, but I uh, would would put them down and, and make them look like not not a professional like the big company that I was working for. The company that I was contracted with was a large national company that had name recognition. Most people knew who it was, and I would criticize the way a lot of of local pest control companies treated homes and try to make them seem, you know, obsolete or or behind you know, the most recent techniques or, or products. My company had a clever marketing campaign and some gimmicky techniques that truthfully sounded a lot better than they actually were. I had quite a bit of success and ended up switching a lot of people out of their service and onto mine. And embarrassingly, I didn't really care how it worked out for them. I really just wanted to make money and, and be recognized by the company for my performance. So unfortunately, many people who investigate the church or are already members but have doubts listen to self-proclaimed experts on church history and doctrine who, who have blogs or books or websites, podcasts or YouTube videos criticizing the prophet Joseph Smith, the restoration uh, and church leaders you know, past and present uh, like 21-year-old me or 22-year-old me selling pest control, uh, they have their own agenda and interests and care very little about the people they seek to influence. Their purpose is not really to educate or help earnest truth seekers. 
It's to destroy faith and, and destroy testimonies. Since the very beginning of the Restoration, even before there was a church, people have sought to discredit Joseph Smith and his calling as a prophet. So in Joseph Smith history, verses 22 and 23, the prophet recounts this. I soon found, however, that my telling the story of the first vision had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion and was the cause of great persecution, which continued to increase. And though I was an obscure boy, only between 14 and 15 years of age, and my circumstances in life such as to make a boy of no consequence in the world, yet men of high standing would take notice sufficient to excite the public mind against me and create a bitter persecution. And this was common among all the sects, all united to persecute me. It caused me serious reflection then and often has since how very strange it was that an obscure boy of a little over 14 years of age and one too who was doomed to the necessity of obtaining a scanty maintenance by his daily labor should be thought a character of sufficient importance to attract the attention of the great ones of the most popular sects of the day and in a manner to create in them a spirit of the most bitter persecution and reviling. But strange or not, so it was, and it was often the cause of great sorrow to myself. So Moroni, when he visited Joseph Smith, he also gave, uh, gave Joseph and us kind of a heads up. So Joseph reported this. This is also in Joseph Smith history, verse 33 in the Pearl of Great Price. He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni, that God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. It didn't take long after the church was organized to have various people apostatize and, and turn against the church. There were also newspaper writers and religious leaders who began making public attacks against the prophet and the church. Criticism has really increased in crescendo with the growth of the church. Today there are actual ministries that exist just to try and destroy the church. Like I mentioned earlier, there are also many you know podcasts and YouTube channels and blogs and websites run by former members who can't leave the church alone but spend their time seeking to destroy the faith of the faithful. I love this talk by Elder Lawrence E. Corbridge of the 70. It's called Stand Forever. It was a BYU devotional, January 22nd, 2019. And Elder Corbridge said this, There are many who deceive, and the spectrum of deception is broad. At one end, we meet those who attack the Restoration, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and the Book of Mormon. Next, we see those who believe in the Restoration, but claim the church is deficient and has gone astray. There are others who also claim to believe in the restoration, but are disillusioned with doctrine that conflicts with the shifting attitudes of our day. There are some who, without authority, lay claim to visions, dreams, and visitations to right the ship, guide us to a higher path, or prepare the church for the end of the world. Others are deceived by false spirits. At the far end of the spectrum, we come to an entire universe of distractions. Never has there been more information, misinformation, and disinformation more goods, gadgets, and games, and more options, places to go, and things to see and do to occupy time and attention away from what is most important. And all of that and much more is disseminated instantaneously 
throughout the world by electronic media. This is a day of deception. That's the end of the quote from Elder Corbridge. This truly is a day of deception. And one of the biggest challenges you and I face is being able to discern truth from deception. So how do we do that? What basics can we identify as true and, and anchor ourselves to? So Elder Corbridge suggested this. He said, there are primary questions and there are secondary questions. Answer the primary questions first. Not all questions are equal and not all truths are equal. The primary questions are the most important. Everything else is subordinate. There are only a few primary questions. I will mention four of them. One, is there a God who is our Father? Two, is Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Three, was Joseph Smith a prophet? Four, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints the Kingdom of God on the earth? By contrast, the secondary questions are unending. They include questions about church history, polygamy, people of African descent and the priesthood, women in the priesthood, how the Book of Mormon was translated, the Pearl of Great Price, DNA and the Book of Mormon, gay marriage, the different accounts of the first vision, and on and on. If you answer the primary questions, the secondary questions get answered too, or they pale in significance and you can deal with the things you understand and things you don't, and things that you agree with, and things you don't, without jumping ship altogether. That's the end of the quote from Elder Corbridge. So ask yourself those primary questions. If you can answer them affirmatively, ask yourself how you know. What experiences have you had that have led you to the fundamental testimony that you have? So write them down if you haven't already. You may need to refer back to those things someday when your faith is weak. If you, can't ask, if you can't answer those questions now, that's okay. Make it your highest priority to find those answers. They come from the Holy Ghost as we study the scriptures, pray and ask questions and keep the commandments. Keep the commandments, you say, yeah, Jesus said this. This is John 7, 16 and 17. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will... He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. It's perfectly fine to have secondary questions. I think, I think we all do to some extent. As we have studied the doctrine and covenants for Come Follow Me this year, it becomes obvious to see how valuable sincere questions are. Many of the revelations we're studying came to the prophet Joseph Smith as a result of him praying and asking a question. That being said, however, we don't need to, to get hung up on those questions. We need to be able to accept that we won't understand everything about the gospel or church history all at once. We might not understand something that is taught by a, a church leader, especially if it conflicts with our social or political views. Uh, we can frame it that way. I don't understand this rather than I can't believe this or I can't accept this. It's worth our while to be patient and wait upon the Lord to help us understand. The prophet Joseph Smith said this about the saints in his day. This is from the history of the church. So Joseph said, There has been a great difficulty in getting anything into the heads of this generation. It has been like splitting hemlock knots with a corn dodger for a wedge and a pumpkin for a beetle. Even the saints are slow to understand. He's referencing chopping wood there. Hemlock is uh, it's a type of hardwood. It's a, it's a tree. So it's, it's really hard 
um, wood to chop and its knots are really tough, the knots in the wood. And so if you were trying to split a hemlock knot with a piece of cornbread, that's what a corn dodger is, as a wedge, and, and that's that would be like a little, like a, a, a metal, you know, triangle wedge that, that was used to chop wood. You pound that in with a hammer or with a sledgehammer or a, or a mallet. So if you had a piece of cornbread as a wedge and a pumpkin as a mallet or a hammer, you can imagine how successful you'd be. So that's an in interesting uh, metaphor there. Um, he also said this, Joseph Smith did. I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God, but we frequently see some of them, after suffering all they have for the work of God, will fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand the fire at all. How many will be able to abide a celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? I am unable to say, as many are called, but few are chosen. That's the end of that quote. Uh, so last week uh, we were studying Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon's vision of the afterlife in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's been interesting to learn how some of the saints in 1832 received this revelation once it was written and given to them. Brigham Young said that some of the saints apostatized or left the church over it. Uh, Brigham himself admitted that he couldn't understand it. To you and me, or someone who's been uh, taught the gospel uh, you know, for a long time or grown up in it, it probably makes perfect sense that there are many mansions, as Jesus put it, or, or various kingdoms of glory in the afterlife. But to the early converts of the church, that idea went completely against what they believed they knew from the Bible. They believed that God would save relatively few of his children and that most would go into an eternal hell and that they deserved hell, basically. Uh, a lot of Christians still believe that. So when Brigham learned that nearly all of Heavenly Father's children would receive a degree of glory, it contradicted the tradition that he had been taught. So what he did, though, is instructive to us. He decided to be patient and not to cast the revelation away or leave the church. He admitted that he didn't understand it, but he allowed the Lord to, over time, to help him understand it, and he ended up accepting it wholeheartedly once the Lord gave him a testimony of it. We can do the same thing instead of flying to pieces like glass, as Joseph Smith put it. On my mission, uh, I was introduced to anti-Mormon literature by people I was trying to teach. Uh, I read some of it with, with the intent to correct the falsehoods in it and, and to answer the questions it brought up. I was shocked, though, at how reading it made me feel. I felt sick to my stomach and just just icky. I don't know if I've ever used the word icky, but I, I think it is appropriate. Um, I tried to push past that because I knew that if I if I told someone, uh, you know, that that it made me you know feel sick inside, they would they would say that it was just because it went against what I believed, and that that's why it disturbed me. It wasn't that though. It was something more. It was it was darkness, something that has the purpose of destroying the work of Jesus Christ comes from an evil source, period. Uh, later in, in my 20s, I studied the responses of scholars, of LDS scholars, to criticisms of the church. Rather than reading the, the anti-Mormon literature directly, I wanted to be able to respond to any negative accusation or question about church history or doctrine. 
slogging through that spiritual sewage though took a toll on me and I don't recommend doing that. There isn't much I haven't read though. I'm familiar with the criticisms of the Book of Mormon and its translation with the life of Joseph Smith, polygamy with the concepts in the Bible that appear to contradict our, our doctrines, all of that. It's sad to me when I hear about people reading something online that disturbs their testimony and they think they've discovered something that other members of the church don't know, something church leaders have kept from the members and 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 now they know this secret information that that somehow convinces them that the, the gospel can't be true, the restoration can't be true. The, there's another side to every story and a scriptural interpretation that explains contradictions. The other thing I learned is that giving time and attention to negative charges made against Christ and his church is, is really not helpful in building faith or finding truth. So Elder Corbridge, who we quoted earlier, had a similar experience. He said this, As part of an assignment I had as a general authority a few years ago, I needed to read through a great deal of material antagonistic to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the events of the Restoration. There may not be anything out there of that nature I haven't read. Since that assignment changed, I have not returned to wallow in that mire again. Reading that material always left me with a feeling of gloom. So what was the gloom I felt several years ago while reading antagonistic material? Some would say that gloom is the product of belief bias, which is the propensity to pick and choose only those things that accord with our assumptions and beliefs. The thought that everything one has believed and been taught may be wrong, particularly with nothing better to take its place, is a gloomy and disturbing thought indeed. But the gloom I experienced as I listened to the dark choir of voices raised against the Prophet Joseph Smith and the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ, the gloom that came as I waded chest deep through the swamp of the secondary questions is different. That gloom is not belief bias, and it is not the fear of being in error. It is the absence of the Spirit of God. That is what it is. It is the condition of man when left unto himself. It is the gloom of darkness and the stupor of thought. In stark contrast to the gloom and sickening stupor of thought that pervades the swamp of doubt is the spirit of light, intelligence, peace, and truth that attends the events and the glorious doctrine of the Restoration, especially the scriptures revealed to the world through the prophet Joseph Smith. Just read them and ask yourself and ask God if they are the words of lies, deceit, delusion, or truth. That's the end of the quote from Elder Corbridge. If you think about it, reading or listening to uh, what's called anti-Mormon material is, is basically like asking the leaders of Iran or North Korea how they feel about America. It's probably not going to be accurate or glowing with praise. And why would you trust a source like that, that you know is antagonistic? Jesus taught some things that were against tradition or that were figurative that some of his followers couldn't understand. He testified that he was sent by the Father. Some people were troubled by this and, and he asked them, doth this offend you? And he said that in John, in John 6, uh, starting in verse 66, he said, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
thou hast the words of eternal life. Now, I don't think that Simon Peter said that because he understood everything Jesus taught. I think he said that because he had a spiritual witness that Jesus was the Messiah and that salvation came through him. And, and Jesus later confirmed this when he asked his disciples uh, what kind of what the scuttlebutt was. What, what, what were people saying about him out in the world? This is Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. We ought to put spiritual knowledge in a category of its own. We need to write down when we feel the Spirit or receive answers to prayers. Those experiences should anchor our faith and our testimony. If we write them down, then we can refer back to them and, and remember how we felt and what we thought at the time. I wrote an experience down in my journal when one of my daughters, who was 11 years old at the time, gained a testimony of, of the Book of Mormon. She came into my room one evening and began asking my wife and I about signs from Heavenly Father and, and what the Spirit felt like. It was kind of out of nowhere. I went with her back to her room to tuck her in. I saw her scriptures open on her bed. Uh, we talked about the different ways the Holy Ghost communicates with people and answers prayers. I'd, I'd noticed all along that her eyes were red and she looked as though she had been crying. I finally asked her what she'd been crying about and she replied, I think I felt the spirit. Tears came to her eyes once again. I'm reading from my journal now. I hugged her and asked her when this had happened. She said that she had been reading earlier and the reason she came upstairs was because she had been using her shirt as a tissue as she sat on her bed crying alone. She had come up to get a tissue. I asked, what does that tell you? She replied, that Heavenly Father is real. I asked what she had been reading when she felt the Spirit. She indicated that it was the Book of Mormon. So what does that tell you about the Book of Mormon, I asked? That it's true, came her reply. Now you have your own testimony, I explained. That's the end of my journal entry. Journal entry. When we have experiences with the Spirit, we need to give them the value that they deserve. They should be lasting and, and foundational to what we believe. They are, they're from God. They should overrule our doubts when those doubts come. And it's understandable that doubts creep into our minds at times. When they do, though, we can choose to dismiss them rather than let them rent a room there. So many of us can do better at following Elder Uchtdorf's counsel he said, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. And the Savior said, look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. So doubting happens sometimes, but we, we don't need to give in to that, and we don't need to entertain those doubts. As a new missionary, um, I found myself troubled by some of the things people I met and tried to teach told me about Joseph Smith. I felt like I had a testimony that Joseph Smith was a true prophet, but I... 
I decided to, to kind of seek a, a greater manifestation of the Spirit. So I knelt down one night, determined to, to, to stay on my knees until an undeniable answer came to me. So I, I, knelt, I knelt there and I prayed and prayed and waited and waited. Nothing happened. My bosom didn't burn. No tears came. No thoughts came. It was just quiet. But eventually, a very subtle, quiet impression came into my mind. I said, you already know. And the Lord was basically telling me, you have enough light on this for now. Now, my testimony of Joseph Smith uh, increased nearly every day after that. Every time I recited Joseph's words about his first vision to an investigator, I felt the spirit. And nearly every time I recited it, some sort of ridiculous distraction would happen to disrupt it. A car horn or a, or, or a loud person uh, would, would there would be some sort of some sort of distraction, which I attributed to the adversary, which increased my testimony even more. He was trying to stop me from telling that story. A few months after my mission ended, I had the opportunity to visit Nauvoo and uh, the Carthage jail where the prophet and his brother Hiram were, were martyred. I felt a very powerful witness there that Joseph was God's prophet. The Lord has continued to increase my testimony over time in that regard. About six years ago, I was listening to a lecture by Truman G. Madsen about the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram in my car for probably the 50th time. At the end of, of this lecture, Brother Madsen testified that a person could not really know that Jesus is the Christ without also knowing that he had a prophet named Joseph Smith. A marvelous and, and sacred experience immediately followed, which really is too sacred to share in a, a public format like this. But it was so powerful that I know now with surety that Joseph Smith was a prophet. No, no slander or opinion can put a dent in that. I know as surely as I know anything that Jesus is the Christ, that Joseph Smith is his prophet and the head of this last dispensation, and that the Book of Mormon is a true record and testament of Jesus Christ, and no one can take that from me. As you have experiences with the Spirit and personal revelation, value them. Write them down and let them anchor your faith and your testimony. If you come across questions, fantastic. Questions are wonderful. Search reliable sources for answers. Ask Heavenly Father your questions. Ask your parents, your leaders, or your bishop your questions. Your questions more than likely have a good answer that you can find if you're patient. If they don't, then be like Brigham Young after reading about the three degrees of glory. Be patient and wait upon the Lord to bless you with understanding. Don't fly apart like glass and don't go swimming in the sewers of the internet where predators wait to devour your faith. The Savior absolutely lives and is the Son of God. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is His kingdom on earth. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>